0: on many occasions someone's come to me as a Bible teacher as a pastor and pointed to a particular passage of the Bible and asked me this question pastor John this passage here do you take it literally every time I'm asked that I'm quick to answer yes of course we should always take the Bible literally and that usually leads to a look of confusion on the face of the person asking the question so I then explain what I mean, here's what I mean. The Bible is literature. It's inspired literature, as we know. Scripture tells of itself, speaks of itself. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Is theo in Greek? All Scripture is God breathed. Second Timothy three sixteen. Now that much needs to be said, but again, more than that needs to be said what does it mean to take something literally here's where I'm going with this to take something literally means to interpret it according to its literature let that truth sink in for a moment because it's a truth that has profound implications let me repeat it once again interpreting something in this case the Bible literally means to interpret it according to its literature. Let's be practical about this. To take the Bible literally or according to its literature means that we interpret each, each verse and passage according to the type of literature it is. There are many stories in the Bible. Stories is a word, a story is a word. That has implications in our day it didn't have in former times when people say i want to tell you a story often what's involved is not something that is true to history but something made up that's not what i mean by the word story we would use a technical phrase historical narrative don't be put off by big words like that when you have a narrator in a movie they are telling the story and so historical narrative is stories set in history true history real history and there are historical narrative passages in our bibles how should they be interpreted they should be interpreted as historical narrative parables there are many parables in our bibles they should be interpreted as parables there are poetic passages how should they be interpreted i'm thinking you understand where we're going with this poetic passages should be interpreted as poetic passages how about figurative language there's much of that in the bible again each figurative language passage and verse should be interpreted according to its literature as figurative and so on you're getting the idea this becomes vitally important when we're seeking to gain a true interpretation of a passage it's the key to a right interpretation of our bibles an example of this is the book of revelation it's what we call apocalyptic literature It's not the only book of the Bible like that. There are parts of the Old Testament prophets which would come under that same canopy, that same banner. Uh, Daniel comes to mind, Ezekiel comes to mind, other passages in other books come to mind. Apocalyptic literature. And it is, by design, let's talk about the book of Revelation, a highly figurative book. And it's perfectly right to interpret the things we find there figuratively because that is the genre of literature before us in the book do you know that word genre g-e-n-r-e it's a good word to know and understand it's the type of literature genre means type of literature and so poetic is a genre Narrative, historical narrative, that's a genre. May I go further and suggest to you that passages in the book of Revelation must be, not it would be nice if they are, but must be interpreted figuratively unless there are compelling reasons in the text for us not to. That's because that's what the genre is. That's the type of literature we're reading. When we read of beasts coming up out of the sea, we're not gonna go, if we're living in Arizona, to San Diego and look at the sea and wait for that thing to appear because we know that's not what we're reading in Revelation of a literal beast coming up out of the sea. It's apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature And it needs to be interpreted in that light it's picture language for something that is real very very real but the beast represents something other than a literal beast it's a picture of something else and that's what it means to take the book of revelation literally and i'm encouraging everyone take your bible and every portion of your bible literally now uh, people can listen to this and then they say well that means we can make it anything we like no 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 we can't we have no right to do that and i would say this having said all i've just said avoid hyper allegorical interpretations you know the word allegory well there was a man in history who was a massive influential theologian rightfully regarded as the greatest theologian of the first millennia of the church outside of the new testament we're talking about augustine aurelius augustine he lived from 354 a.d to 430 a.d known commonly as augustine he taught a hyper allegorical method of interpretation which was very highly speculative now he had some great things to disclose he was a Titan he was gigantic in the scheme of things as a theologian no doubt about it head and shoulders above others but in this regard he didn't help the church He was massive as a theologian, but that didn't mean he got everything right. There was no one around him who was of equal intellect to really challenge him at the time. Here's what we read regarding a commentary he made on Luke chapter 10, 29 through 37, which is the passage about the Good Samaritan. This is Augustine, his commentary on that. I'm going to read uh, his words. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Adam himself is meant. Jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace from whose blessedness Adam fell. Jericho means the moon and signifies our mortality because it is born, waxes, wanes, and dies. Thieves are the devil and his angels who stripped him, namely, of his immortality and beat him by persuading him to sin and left him half dead, because insofar as man can understand and know God, he lives, but insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead. He is therefore called half dead. The priest and the Levite who saw him and passed by signify The priesthood and ministry of the old testament which could profit nothing for salvation samaritan means guardian and therefore the lord himself is signified by this name the binding of the wounds is the restraint of sin oil is the comfort of good hope wine the exhortation to work with fervent spirit the beast is the flesh in which he designed to come to us the being set upon the beast is belief in the incarnation of christ the inn is the church where travelers returning to their heavenly country are refreshed after pilgrimage the morrow is after the resurrection of the lord the two pence are either the two precepts of love or the promise of this life and of that which is to come the innkeeper is the apostle paul the superrogatory payment is either his counsel of celibacy or the fact that he worked with his own hands lest he should be a burden to any of the weaker brethren when the gospel was new though it was lawful for him to live by the gospel Uh, end of quote now what do you do with that well what you do with that is say that's kind of ridiculous. Um, (laughs) While Augustine is rightly heralded heralded for his massive contribution to our understanding of theology, when we get to his hyper-allegorical interpretations of Scripture, it wasn't a blessing. In fact, it's something of a blight on his legacy, not something good at all. Having said that, even this statement must be understood in its context for the simple reason there was no fellow theologian that was comparable to augustine around to correct or challenge him only in the light of great minds analyzing his work through the many centuries can we see two things both his vast contribution to the church as well as the things which were not in any way helpful his hyper allegorical methodology and interpreting the scripture being something of that for sure when it comes to analyzing that quotation do you know why would his interpretation be any better than someone else's there isn't any given a certain man went down from jerusalem to jericho adam is meant jerusalem is the heavenly city of peace How, how do we know that how do we know any of that we don't it's made up now when it comes to interpreting our Bibles one man said there are three laws just as in real estate in real estate there are three laws location 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 that will tell you uh, about the price of the real estate in view the building the house what it might be location 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 Uh, if you've got real estate in New York you'll pay a different price for that uh, piece of planet Earth than you will in the plains of Montana it's just a fact location 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 well in the realm of Bible interpretation three rules might be context 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 and we cannot drill that hard enough that is so true to understand a passage rightly read the text in its context read a verse with knowledge of what comes before and what comes after it's so helpful to understand the interpretation that is meant as it was uh, given to us by the holy spirit so location context these things are invaluable to us let me give you another rule genre 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 I've said genre simply means the form or the type of literature and we should interpret the Bible literally but that doesn't mean we don't recognize parables are parables and they're not historical narrative and to interpret them correctly we interpret them as literal parables In our bibles historical narrative is historical narrative nouns are nouns verbs are verbs analogies are analogies let me read you a verse of scripture from isaiah chapter 55 and verse 12 and i want to ask you what genre is this for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. All right, that's the verse. What are you looking at? Is it historical narrative? The answer is no. It's poetic imagery. You'll go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And then we read. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing is this a prophetic statement to say that there's coming a time when even with the most basic electronic equipment you're going to be able to record the songs of the mountains and the hills because they're going to break forth into singing there's coming a time when mountains and hills are going to put be putting basically musical albums together they'll be singing they'll be rocking it you'll be able to hear it you'll be led forth in peace but the mountains are going to go nuts with songs song upon song upon song they're going to break forth into singing and look at this and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands there's coming a time when trees will be clapping clapping to the beat well what do you do with that well what you do with that is you see what is obviously before you inherently without a bible scholar coming alongside you and whispering something in your ear when you read those words you know you're reading a poetic statement and what is the statement saying it's saying there's coming a time when creation will be set free in fact we find allusions to this in places like romans chapter 8 of the whole creation groaning waiting for something waiting for redemption in its fullest sense when creation itself will be free from the effects of the fall now trees don't have hands therefore they can't clap but poetically we get a picture creation itself will be so released from its captivity under the curse that will it will be as if mountains are singing and trees are clapping their hands now I don't think I even needed to explain that but in explaining it we see a principle do not we that there are times when You read that, and if you read it in a woodenly literal way, you would say, the Bible says mountains are going to sing, hills are going to sing. They're going to break forth into singing, and it may not look like it, but every tree has hands because God says trees of the field shall clap them. And again, I even say that. I'm sure there's even a smile on your face as I'm saying it. You know that's wrong that's an invalid interpretation because of the genre the poetic nature of what we're reading let me go further i trust this is helpful to you Uh, there's been times many times when i'm in my study and i'm reading and my wife comes in and says you need to read with the light on you'll see better with the light on and she puts the light on and i look around and think you know what why didn't i do that why didn't i put the light on and you see more and you have less straining of the eyes to to do that so there's a physical reason but think of that in a spiritual sense we have much more light in the new testament than we have in the old testament think of it this way In Genesis chapter one, it's the start of God's revelation to us in the Bible. And it's as if there's a dimmer switch of the light just turning on and we're beginning to see what we couldn't have seen before. Everything we're reading is amazing. It's inspired by God. But would you agree with me when I say this? As you and I read Genesis one, then Genesis two and three and four, and read through Genesis to Exodus and Exodus to Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy as we go through our Bibles and as we go all the way through to our Bibles to the end of the book of Revelation which is Revelation 22 do you realize would you agree with this we've learned more About God and his ways and the way of salvation By the time we've come to the end of Revelation 22 than we did at the beginning in Genesis 1 thank God for everything in our Bibles but the Bible is progressive revelation and the more we read of it the more we know the more the light is turned on for us and the great light as John chapter 1 talks about very very clearly reveals to us the great light is Jesus Christ in the incarnation once he has come we we can look back now at our old covenant the first testament and see oh so much more because now the light has come jesus is the light of the world and he has brought us the knowledge of god in a way that no one else has if you've seen jesus you've seen the father you've seen the revelation hebrews chapter 1 god has spoken in his son it's the light fully on the dimmer switch was turned on in genesis 1 and then as we come to the new testament it's on full blast so to speak it's fully turned on it's turned on all the way that dimmer switch is turned right the way up so we have the greatest light available now that christ has come in knowing who jesus is we can now look back and see genesis in the light of christ exodus in the light of christ Leviticus numbers Deuteronomy the Psalms wherever you go in the Old Testament it's much more there's much more that we can see now that Christ has come and so we are to read our Bibles with the light turned on not that long ago we did a series here at the church I was preaching each Sunday we gave about 35 lord's day sunday morning sermons to genesis chapters 1 through 11. that's the area of attack in our day genesis 1 through 11 and we spent a lot of time 35 sundays going through genesis 1 to 11 but one of the things i said at the beginning of that series was we're going to read these wonderful verses wonderful chapters genesis 1 to genesis chapter 11 In the light of the coming of Christ and Jesus had much to say about the opening chapters of Genesis as does Paul as does John in the New Testament and it's right to read the old in the light of the new so I want to encourage you read your Bible with the greatest light available to you and that means interpreting the Old Testament in light of the new let me say that again interpreting the Old Testament in the light the full blazing light of the coming of Christ in the New Testament to quote Augustine again this time uh, this is a wonderful quote of his he had a famous statement the new is in the old concede uh, concealed excuse me Let me start again the new is in the old concealed the old is in the new revealed it's a very famous statement of his what it expresses is the priority of the New Testament over the Old Testament in other words the New Testament explains the Old Testament it's the Holy Spirit's interpretation or commentary on Old Testament passages John Fonville writes and he's now quoting someone else let me quote the quote Old Testament scholar Graham Goldsworthy observes that it is impossible from the Old Testament alone to understand the full meaning of God's acts and promises that it records Jesus said that he gives the Old Testament its meaning Thus, Jesus himself affirms that we need the Old Testament to understand what he says about himself. And Jesus drives us back to the Old Testament to read and understand it through Christian eyes. He teaches us that the Old Testament leads us to him. John chapter 5, 39. John chapter 5, uh, 46 remember jesus said you search the scriptures for you think that in them you have eternal life and these are they that speak of me and continuing on the quote thus goldsworthy notes that in seeking to understand the scriptures we do not start at genesis 1 and work our way forward until we discover where the story is leading instead we start with christ the gospel And he directs us to read and understand the Old Testament in light of the gospel. The gospel interprets the Old Testament by showing us its meaning and goal. The Old Testament increases our understanding of the gospel by showing us what Christ fulfills for us. End of quote. Let's go in our Bibles to one passage, and this might be helpful for us. I think it will be. Amos. You might need to pause for a moment and find the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9. There we read these words. There's only nine chapters in Amos. And verse 11. Amos nine eleven. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. What do we do with that? well we read it and we enjoy it and we ponder the words but let's now go to the book of Acts in the New Testament and I'm going to now illustrate what I've just been making and suggesting as a principle let's go to Acts chapter 15 Acts chapter 15 and we read these words what have we got here in acts chapter 15 it's the jerusalem council and it's been laid out what is required of gentiles who are now in the church the earliest uh, members of the church were almost exclusively all jews but now gentiles are coming in and they are being told what it is they are to do as gentiles to be true to the christian faith look with me as we read verse 11 but we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the lord jesus just as they will talking of Jews and Gentiles, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, so now this is James speaking, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, Turn to god but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood do you see what just happened james in acts chapter 15 verses 16 and 17 is quoting our passage we just read in amos chapter 9 and the apostle james explains the prophecy about the restoration of israel and teaches very clearly it's being fulfilled by the church the israel of god what do we do with that well what we don't do is say it can't mean that no this is by the power of the holy spirit the holy spirit's commentary on the prophetic passage in amos chapter 9 and so it's totally legitimate to look back at amos 9 and read it in the light of what the new testament reveals about it here's another one here's what we read in hosea chapter 11 when israel was a child This is Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and i bent down to them and fed them now what's in view here is hosea who is the prophet of the lord is looking back to the time of the exodus remembering that when israel was just a very little child in terms of being a nation god delivered israel out of that bondage in egypt Many years ago, by Moses and the plagues and all that happened there, God called his son Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's what we're reading about in Hosea chapter 11. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, of course, this is... The New Testament, and we read some very powerful words. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. Let's read verse 13 through to 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise. my son. Those last words are familiar to us because we just read them in Hosea 11. Let me quote Kevin DeYoung, who wrote an article on this, and I'm going to quote him extensively because he says it so well, he writes it so well. That last verse has caused lots of consternation. The Holy Family goes to Egypt, and this somehow fulfills Hosea's Reference to Israel's exodus? Well, at first glance, it looks like Matthew is connecting the dots by the slimmest of connections. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Here, in Matthew 2, refers to God hiding Jesus away in Egypt to avoid Herod's decree and then calling him back from Egypt when Herod is dead. This seems to be unrelated to anything Hosea was talking about how can we say how can matthew say this flight to egypt fulfilled the words of the prophet hosea when the two events seem connected by no more than the word egypt how can that how can this possibly be a fulfillment of old testament prophecy kevin deyoung continues that's a tough question and one that has generated a lot of bad answers some with good intentions have said, look, Matthew says Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, so it must be that Hosea is a direct prophecy about the Messiah and only about the Messiah. Hosea knew is predicting something about the Christ. That does try to make sense of Matthew's language, but you really have to get creative with Hosea to make it look like he was knowingly predicting a messianic flight to Egypt. Others have suggested that Matthew was just making a loose connection between two events that had to do with Egypt. He's just playing free association with biblical prophecy. Jesus came out of Egypt. Here's something in the prophets about Egypt. So let's put the two together. Not only does this make Matthew look a bit silly and throw into question some basic beliefs about biblical inspiration, this sort of loosey-goosey, Prophetic fulfillment simply doesn't fit with the rest of Matthew's gospel. Matthew, more than any gospel writer, goes to great lengths to show that Jesus' birth, life, and death are rooted firmly in the Old Testament. Jesus was born of a virgin, fulfilling Isaiah 7.14. He was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling Micah 5.1 and 2. He was sought out to be killed by Herod, fulfilling Jeremiah 31.15. He was preceded by John, preparing the way, fulfilling Isaiah 40, verse 3. He healed diseases, fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 4. He spoke through parables, fulfilling Psalm 78, verse 2. He came to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, fulfilling Zechariah 9, verse 9. Matthew is very deliberate with his use of the Old Testament, so his citing of Hosea 11 must be more than just a connection with the word egypt so how do we make sense of this prophecy in hosea in fulfillment in matthew the first step to understanding matthew's purpose is to look more carefully at the word fulfill the greek word is pleuro and it simply means to fill up that's what matthew is at pains to demonstrate that jesus was filling up the Old Testament some sometimes this meant very specifically the Old Testament predicted the Messiah's birthplace would be Bethlehem and Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem there you go that's fulfillment but fulfillment can be broader than that it can refer to the filling up of the Old Testament that is the bringing to light what previously had been in shadows that's the end of the quote. And I think that's very, very helpful. Um, he says more, and let me find that and continue the quote. So what exactly is Jesus fulfilling or filling up in Matthew two? Jesus, as Matthew correctly understands the situation, is filling up the redemptive historical purposes of the nations of the nation. In other words, Matthew can claim that this Hosea passage which talks about the exodus of Israel out of Egypt is fulfilled in Jesus because Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. Matthew looked back and saw an analogical correspondence between the history of the nation Israel and the history of the Messiah. The Hosea 11.1 quotation by Matthew is not an example of arbitrary exegesis on the part of a New Testament writer. On the contrary, Matthew looked back and carefully drew analogies between the events of the nation's history and the historical incidents in the life of Jesus. I hope that's helpful. When Jesus fled Herod and went to Egypt, It Again, to use Kevin DeYoung's words, it brought to a climax the work of deliverance that began in the exodus of Israel and was now coming to completion in the exodus of Jesus. That's why Matthew can say this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Whereas the first Israel, God's son, broke the covenant and deserved God's wrath, when God beholds His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, He says in Matthew three seventeen, This is my Son, whom I love, with Him I'm well pleased. Far from being a merely or barely connected prophetic fulfillment, this word from Hosea 11, filled up in Matthew 2, is a robust piece of New Testament theology. This text says something weighty about the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who came to complete all that Israel was designed to perform. All the adulteries and idolatries and rebellion and waywardness that characterized Israel would be recast in the true Israel, Jesus Christ. God sent his son to do himself what his people could not do for themselves. This is the meaning of fulfillment of hosea 11 and the true meaning of emmanuel god with us i hope that's helpful as we look at our bibles and the main point is this genre is massively important and we should never go beyond what scripture says when we look for fulfillment of old testament prophecy prophecy we look to the new to ask the question how does the holy spirit in the new interpret that particular passage and when we do that we're reading now the old testament with the light on let's read the old in the light of the new very very helpful interpretive rule That's what we see in the New Testament, and that's what we should do when we read the Old Testament. Read the old in the light of the new. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Bibles. We thank you that it is inspired by God, every word of it, and to treat it with the respect and honor it deserves includes reading the words in context, It includes understanding the genre, and it includes the third aspect we've talked about today, reading the Old Testament in light of the new and the coming of Christ and what he's done. And as we do this, our Bibles go from black and white to full technicolor, and we see the beauty and the blazing glory of Christ Now, as we read familiar passages in Genesis, what was obscure to us is now clear to us because of the coming of Christ. We thank you for this. Help us as we study our Bibles. Let's be good students, Lord. Make us good students who search out the Scriptures, who study to show ourselves approved by God. 2 Timothy 2, 15. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.